Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. podcast fans, I'm Mina Rizuki. Welcome to the Telegraph Audio Football Club. There's no Tom Gibbs this time round, but don't worry, he'll be back next week. But so much to discuss today, starting with Liverpool's win in the Premier League with a 3-1 win over Manchester City, who slipped down to a lowly fourth position. Elsewhere, Chelsea and Leicester continue to look brilliant, while Arsenal and Spurs are quite the opposite. This is quite an exciting season, isn't it? Plus, there's the rest of the action from the Premier League and a European roundup featuring the Classica, Conte and, of course, Lionel Messi being Lionel Messi. Okay, so let's take you now into the audio recording facility where I'm joined by Matt Law. Hi, Matt. Hello. I'm scared I've forgotten what to do. I've been, it's been so long. I feel like, you know, I had to reintroduce myself because I've forgotten who you are again. I'm Mina, in case anyone's, you know, wondering. And of course, Jim White. How are you, Jim? I'm very good, thank you. Did you enjoy the weekend? Uh, yes, I had a very good weekend, actually. Oh. Uh, I went to Old Trafford, which was fine. Always fun. Yeah, yeah. If you don't get wet, of course. And yeah. it was pouring with rain and uh, the roof is falling in at Old Trafford, as you, uh, as you may know. Uh, when they played Arsenal, the water came pouring in and people had to be evacuated from those seats. It was very, very damp. Oh, that's a regular weekend in Serie A stadiums. But um, <laughs> should we start off with the biggest uh, match of it all? It's only, it's only the three of us, sadly. Um, later, we will have the poorly Jeremy Wilson on the phone to discuss uh, Arsenal with us. But let's take it from the top because obviously it was the game of the season. <laughs> <laughs> In November. In, in November. Matt, you don't seem that interested in it. Um, no, I was, I was for sure. It's just it makes me laugh when it's all game of the season in November. Well, uh, there's a big gap now between the two. There is. Liverpool hosted City and, of course, uh, well, 3-0 victory. I mean, a comprehensive victory. I, I Do you find it strange there's been all this, you know, so much drama? Well, let, let's go through the handball because I feel like we, we have to get it out of the way. Oh, God. Yeah. I mean, I think it was handball. I do. Um, I think his his arm was far enough out that that should constitute a handball. There's also a debate as to whether, if, even if you're saying it's not a penalty, I also saw a debate around yesterday about the fact that a handball now with the VAR rules can't be um, any type of handball in the lead-up to a goal has to rule the goal out. So other than whether you give a penalty, there's also a debate of whether... It's not a penalty, but you could still rule the goal out because there's been a handball in the build-up to the goal. Yeah, well, Bernardo, very complicated. Uh, Bernardo uh, handled it before it hit That's the other, Arnold. Yeah. Um, they're now saying, no, if it's in the uh, uh, a, a defending side, that doesn't count. But um, the problem with the the ruling was it's so blooming inconsistent. Yeah, you know? that's you, the thing. You, you know, you're getting... Um, Almost identical incidents, sometimes ruled as interfering and changing the, the the play we see on, sometimes not, sometimes penalties being awarded, sometimes not. It's become way too subjective. And the whole point of VAR was it was meant to be adding objectivity, but it seems to be completely all over the place. Yeah. Haywire. And you, you, you look at it yesterday and you, you look at it and you know that within a couple of weeks you will see a penalty given for that. Yes. 
which is infuriating for everybody. But not only a penalty given for that, you'll see a penalty given by VAR, yeah. which will overrule what was done on the pitch. Yeah. The inconsistency is ludicrous. And then, of course, there's the fact that nobody knows what's going on on the pitch or in the stadium. I was at uh, Old Trafford and uh, there was a, a lengthy VAR uh, hold up uh, potentially a handball in the lead up to one of the Manchester United goals. Oh, yeah. Nobody knew what was going on. The ref just sort of standing there, players all around him not knowing what was going on, the crowd not knowing what was going on. And this lack of information is really undermining it. Uh, as a system, it is being undermined every time it is being used because nobody tells you what's going on. Jim yeah. is flouting the VAR rules of this show, isn't he? I know, he? because we usually have a 30-second You're riding timer. roughshod over the VAR rules. Okay, VAR is going to come in and make you be sent off for this, I think. And All right, well, let's move on from VAR. Let's have 10 minutes of silence <laughs> yeah. while uh, the VAR rules over while my... We see this how is long why we need Tom Gibbs, because clearly I'm such a ter terrible mediator. <laughs> it's becoming impossible to actually uh, stick to that rule. But I do want to know, like, what about the psychological shift? Is it the fact that, you know, the first goal was Liverpool, gave them the onus or the belief in themselves to keep going forward and now totally take advantage of Manchester City. Had Manchester City gotten or managed to get that disallowed, whatever it may be, do you think the psychological advantage would have been with them? Well, I think without Edison there, as we were just discussing off mic, um, mm. they needed... <laughs> the, the psychological advantage played a huge part because they already didn't have their first choice goalkeepers. That, that was on their minds. They had Angelino at left back. You know, it already felt like things were against them. They've got their issues in defence. So for that to go against them so early in the game as well. Well, why was, wasn't Mendy there? There was an. I don't actually know. It's a I'm tactical decision. Yeah. But this is where... There seems to be a problem there, though, between Guardiola and Mendy, don't they? They like to laugh it off of, oh, isn't Mendy really funny? And I'll, he'll, Guardiola will kind of have a pop at something Mendy's done on Twitter. Mendy will put something else on Twitter. Everyone laughs. And yet <laughs> this keeps going back and forth. And it feels like there's an underlying issue there that none of the two guys actually want to admit to. But I think if we're grasping, there is a sense of grasping at straws by talking about the psychological advantage or psychological oh, I disadvantage. I thought Liverpool were a superior side. And everything, if you're in a situation where everything has to go your way to give you even a chance of securing a point, that shows you're behind. And I think City at the moment with their defensive issues are just well behind. They didn't play that badly. Uh, for the rest of the the, the field. It's just that their defence is really porous at the moment. And when you've got a bad goalkeeper, um, it adds to that. You know, if Edison had been playing behind those guys, it, they wouldn't have been as vulnerable as they were. And the problem is when you go to a place like Anfield, which has become now latterly absolutely a fortress, you're in real trouble, you know. And I think... I totally agree uh, with Matt. November, for goodness sake, why are we saying it's the match of the season? But I can't see Liverpool losing three games over the course of the year. They're just not going to lose. I'd be surprised to lose one more. This is a, this is actually a very interesting point because you see, going into the season, I thought for sure at some point Liverpool were going to show their fatigue because you feel like after everything that they went through last year, winning in Europe, obviously, as well as the fact that their three forwards are have been engaged in summer tournaments, that there's got to be a, a stage where they just start to feel their exhaustion and yet it hasn't been there. Is it likely to happen at all? I suppose the big test will be around Christmas time with the World Club cup mm. um i mean already they're gonna have to it looks like they're pretty much gonna forfeit the carabao cup um and then whether they can come back from the world club cup keep the momentum going whether they pick up any injuries there it's just so early to say i mean if, if they get two injuries in the front three all of a sudden the perspective on them completely changes um especially if it's a time when laporte comes back for man city i agree if you're going to ask me now who's going to win the title liverpool but it's so early and so much can happen so you're saying that but i think in terms of the fatigue the test around christmas with that world club cup if they come through that unscathed and then we're talking mid-january end of january with a similar gap then yeah i'm on board but unlike city they have got defensive replacements they've got no, defensive replacements that's why i say if they got one or two injuries in the front three mm. Particularly if they've got two. I think they've they've pro probably already proven when Salah's been out that they can keep going with one injury. If two of those front three were to go at any stage, and they could do, who knows, um, then it could swing the balance again. 
So you're saying that Laporte is the one that makes the difference because you said if he comes back for City, then that could make the difference. Is is that, you know, why was he not replaced? Have they made mistakes over there? Or is he? Is it his absence that can be keenly felt? Or is this another alibi that we go by? Because, you know, Laporte was there when they lost in the Champions League against Spurs. Laporte has been there, you know, when they have had, let's be honest, a lot of failure in, in, in Europe as well. Is it the, the way that, you know, this is the beautiful tactics of offensive, you know, the offensive football that Pep, but is the sort of compromise that you have, which does leave them defensively open, too much of a weakness in when it comes to his game? Uh, yes. And are we willing to shoulder it? Certainly in Europe. What, what I would say is with Laporte in there in Premier League, it seems to be enough, doesn't it? When, yeah. when Laporte's there in the Premier League, despite their as you say, their shortcomings in Europe defensively, it doesn't actually seem to to hamper them in the Premier League too much. So I think it is a massive thing in the Premier League. I mean, look, it's easy to say now, but I do think we were saying it in the summer, or certainly in the early shows, that they made a mistake in the transfer window by not signing a defender. You know, you lose, company goes, um, you've got issues back there already anyway, and you don't bring a centre-back in. And they're just, they're paying for it. They really are paying for it. And there's no way around that. Whatever they say... You can't get around that fact. And, you know, if you compare you compare their back four to uh, Liverpool's or Leicester's, they're lacking in fullbacks. That's yeah. a real that's, problem. That's that what I was going to say. I mean, at the start of the season, you wouldn't have necessarily said, and they need a left-back. But now you'd say, they need a centre-back and a left-back. And, really. and a proper reserve goalkeeper. So if you haven't yeah. got those things, I mean, you're talking about a really, really suffering defence when they went. It's not just Laporte's absence, though that is significant. Okay, so moving on uh, from the big game, of course, the other highlight of the weekend was indeed Leicester and uh, their destruction. Maybe that's too much of a harsh word on on poor Arsenal. Made life a little bit uh, harder for Unai Emery, but they're looking like serial contenders. We have to call them title challengers now. Yeah, you do. They're second. I mean, if Manchester City are still title challengers and Leicester City are title challengers, it'd be quite funny if Brendan Rodgers stopped Liverpool winning the league, wouldn't it? <laughs> Probably not to Liverpool fans, but <laughs> I'd laugh. But we have uh, Jeremy Wilson with us. Uh, how are you, Jeremy? I'm good, thanks. Yeah, I'm all right. You're not supposed to say you're good. You're not here because you said you were sick. <laughs> I've had a bit of flu over the weekend. Yeah, I've had a, uh, still a bit, still a little bit under the weather. But you know, I can, I can, I can sort of uh, well enough to talk about Arsenal. Are you still in your pajamas? Worse, worse than mine. Not quite that bad, no. But you know, uh, probably, probably not quite full office um, <laughs> attire at the moment. <laughs> okay, Jeremy. Let me ask you this: They registered Arsenal only one shot on target. And it's been dismal for them for quite a while now. Do you think they'll stand by Emery? I think they probably will, just because the sort of culture of the club is that they don't, they're not very, a bit too, probably for most fans liking, a bit too passive in these situations. They're not really a Chelsea that will, or, or a Chelsea as were, that will react very quickly when, when they get into these kind of situations. So I think that, I think that with the money that, that was invested over the summer, that obviously top four is the, was the, the sort of minimum or the aim stroke minimum expectation. I think if they fall away from that, there could be an argument to to make a, a change. But I think in terms of availability of managers would also come into the equation. So I, I would be very surprised if they reacted um, this side of the, the season, unless it really, this side of the end of the season, unless it really tailed off badly. But I think there are massive questions about Emery and his suitability to start with, really. Uh, I just think his sort of presence and the communication issues, I, I just don't think he's, and also how he's handled certain situations, you know, Ozil and Zaka, um, just, just very. It feels quite indecisive, all of it. Just, and I think if they felt that Zaka had got a hard, hard, harsh treatment by the supporters, and you know it was a fairly minor overreaction that, that he made, that, that maybe they could have come out a bit more. He could have almost made the point that he's our captain. We, you know, we, we've, we've all, we, yeah, a bit of a call for unity, maybe a slight acceptance that he overstepped the mark, but essentially stood by him. They bet, or or they could have really said, right, you've got to apologise, and it kind of seemed to okay. They come down on the side of after a few days of effectively saying that he was in the wrong, and that the fans were were 
you know, that he's, he's not an acceptable captain at the moment. But I just felt it was really indecisive. It was, you know, they trod a bit of a middle path, and I, I think they should have gone one way or the other quite firmly. Really, no, I, I agree with you. I feel like they are somewhat of a team that you know is lacking in identity. At least they were offensively brilliant before. Nowadays, you just see, you know, Aubameyang and Lacazette going back into defensive positions, and you're like, this isn't going to be the reason for this. You either outscore the opponent or decide who you are. But I do want to talk about Leicester because it just seems. Can to I be... chip in on Arsenal? Okay. Just very quick. Sure. They're, they're not only a team lacking identity; they're a little club lacking identity. The, I mean, the, the ownership there. Sorry about this, Jeremy, but the ownership there are a complete no. joke. Um, I mean, they're strangling that club. They don't care. They don't look as though they care. I mean, the fact they're just leaving it to tick along and almost leaving... I've got no particular sympathy with Emery. I, I don't think he's done a very good job, but it feels like they're almost leaving him to hang himself at the moment, so and leaving you... him out to dry. They did the same thing with Wenger, and they don't actually seem to be that bothered enough. So you don't think they'll actually go and try to replace him? And if they did, you don't think they could resolve any of the issues? Well, I don't think they could. I don't. Uh, who would you trust to make the decision there? I mean, they've... they've, they've I know that Gazidas sort of was in charge of the Emery decision and he's now not there. Um, but who would you trust to make that decision now? The, the, the decisions that they've made as a club under the cronky ownership for years now have been dreadful. They need to put Robbie from Arsenal Fan TV uh, <laughs> in charge. Uh, when even Robbie is sort of despairing. You yeah. know, there's an issue. And, you I know, think uh, Sam Leahy is probably the one that... He would be in charge, but I don't know at the moment why you'd particularly trust that he would do do make a good fist of it. And and also, you know, the the fans have almost become the voice of that club because there's no voice from the top. I mean, I, we never we yeah, never hear I, from the Cronkies. We, we, we hear a little bit more recently, but you don't really know what they want or what they want to do. And so the loudest voice just becomes the fans. I think that the, um, I mean, I'm not trying to defend the, I think that they, from their point of view, they they see themselves as own, an ownership that will back their sort of people that they put in place. So they're not going to jump in very quickly with the manager unless they're really convinced that there's a sort of problem that can't be fixed. And, uh, you know, I think a bit we come want to have it both ways because we will knock owners that, that do jump in very quickly. But, yeah, I think I can under, completely understand the, the sort of feeling. And, and uh, But they did... And I think their problem, big problem, has been one of recruitment, really, and decision-making on contracts because the Ozil one was a... a, a clearly a disastrous decision to give him that bumper contract which has sort of just created this uh, sort of chain reaction of problems and then the way they've invested the money um over the summer but they 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 spent big over the summer and also it, the, the the accounts will come out at some point soon it's not completely clear but certainly the vibe and sense that I've got from people is that the Cronkies put some of their own money in this summer, which was the first time they would have done that. So from their perspective, it's like we've put money in, we've backed the manager and we've made some poor, you know, there's been some poor recruitment things. So I think as an overall ownership, you could, you can certainly point the finger of, of did, should they have appointed Emery? Have they got the right executives in place? Have they made good decisions in terms of the people that are doing the analytics and the recruitment and, and all of that? But in terms of this sort of broader thing, they, I, I, I have some sympathy with with, with the point that they they that they've. They're, they're making the money available. They seem to have put some money in themselves. They're not taking any money out, and they try and back the people they've appointed. And they, I think they, and the sort of thing they don't care. I think that's quite, a, you know, that's that that's certainly the perception that they that they might give off. But they're pretty. I, I mean, I I can say whatever else people say about the decisions they've made. I can say with some certainty that they're they're very engaged in terms of. It wrapped up in the matches day week to week and and are at the matches a lot more than perhaps people sometimes realize but yeah i do think that there is a a, a lack of clear leadership in terms of who when wenger was there he was kind of the main man who would make the key decisions to some extent you, you sort of thought gazidis would become that person and at the moment you can't really see who who is the you know most clubs have, have got a sort of 
main point in terms of the football side he he you'd he, he'd say is really driving it sometimes it's a manager and sometimes it's someone like Daniel Levy and it's difficult to really identify that I'm Arsenal glad you said moment. Daniel Levy because now we have to talk about Spurs <laughs> <laughs> and um and they're experiencing their own problems because 14. let's be honest they're yeah 14. they're 14th unbelievable they've, they've faced a newly promoted side in Sheffield United and frankly Sheffield were amazing to watch and should have won the game am I sort of being overly enthusiastic about them because no I was at the game I was at the game for sure I mean they they were absolutely the best side in the first half and then the second half they scored two good goals and and one got ruled out so on that equation then you're completely right they should have won the game and they were everything that Spurs weren't and going back to what we were saying about Arsenal the thing about Sheffield United is direction purpose and identity they've got all of that uh, and it shows what you can deliver as a result of it. It just looks like they have such a harmonious group that everyone just really likes each other in the dressing room. And I just think it's almost it, one that's, thing that that's doesn't... partly due to the fact that no one in the Sheffield United team, as far as I know, is being paid £350,000 a week. I mean, you know, you maintain harmony. It's not hard to do it. It's by treating everybody in roughly the same way. Yeah. Wilder's very good at it and the board are very good at it. And they're based on a bunch of guys who have ambition uh, but who aren't being, um, you know, over-rewarded for it. It's it's a very, They're so very well clever. drilled as well. They're so well drilled. Oh, it's such good coaching. Chris Wilder really is, has been astonishingly good. But, I mean, if we're going to speak of great coaches, then we also have to talk about Frank Lampard because his Chelsea side are rather astonishing to watch. And again, filled with, with players that we weren't sure were necessarily going to cut it day in and day out. But you look at the way that they're playing and it's just fantastic viewing. Yeah, I mean, I keep thinking, <laughs> fixtures keep coming along and I keep thinking they're going to trip up now. They, they can't just keep going and going and going. They're a young side. It's going to catch up with them at some point and they just go again and go again. And the, the most impressive thing at the moment, and whether it's a combination of good management, good fortune or the stars aligning, is that every big decision Lampard's making at the moment is coming off spectacularly. For instance, a few weeks ago, we headed to Ajax for the Champions League. Christian Pulisic looked like he was in a terrible place. I know. And, you know, people were... The only sort of black mark against Chelsea's season was Christian Pulisic. And then he comes on against Ajax, makes an impact. Lampard brings him in the next day. All of a sudden, Christian Pulisic is flying. So he makes that decision. Then at the weekend, he drops his captain and puts Rhys James in, the right back. Rhys James, everybody knows how talented he is, but it's a massive call to do that. Really massive call, particularly when you're on a... Against Zaha. Against Zaha, and you're on a winning run. So there's no necessity to do it. You're winning every game anyway. And he makes that call, and it pays off. You know, Rhys James has a wonderful game, keeps Zaha in his pocket, and they win again. The timing of his decisions and when he's making them looks like genius at the moment. Now, as I say, it could be partly good fortune and just one of those things where everything's coming off. But it's, it's incredible. He's the perfect manager for Chelsea at this current situation in that they're banned from uh, making any purchases in the transfer market. Um, so, you know, you've got to be pragmatic. It's a pragmatic... Listen, Chelsea haven't suddenly become romantics mm. and, and want to bring in kids no, from, the, uh, yeah. from the juniors. It's a pragmatic decision. But he is the man who will conduct that. You know, if you're looking at Italian managers, sorry, I uh, mean, experience is um, a fetish in it- Italian football and yes. they're not going to start bringing in kids. They're not going to drop the captain and bring in a, a young player, no matter how talented Absolutely. they are. And so Lampard actually is a very effective pragmatic choice it's a it's a it's a it's a it's a it's paid off for them oh. really remarkably but far, it's, far I mean I don't know whether they'd ever admit it but I mean they can't have ever imagined it would be going this well at this stage well I wouldn't have ever imagined it if I thought when Frank Lampard was being linked to the job I was like why would he take it I mean knowing that they don't have Hazard knowing that they can't buy anyone like I would want to come in if I'm sort of a legend of the club and make sure that everything's in place but he's made the most of it Chelsea are the only side that don't seem to ever follow the rules you know they just have new coaches all the time they're in and out you know, and they always seem to find a way to get through it. I know. I mean, talking to, um, I did an interview a few weeks ago with Michael Emanalo, who obviously knows Abramovich really well. And one thing he said to me is that Abramovich loves being a trendsetter. And when I said to him, what will he make of this, this season without winning a trophy? He said he will be loving the fact that he will feel he's creating a trend again and that he's always liked doing that since he's been in charge at Chelsea. He wants to be different and he wants then people to follow him. It's funny, in, in, in Italy we always have a saying about Chelsea, lucky, lucky Chelsea. But 
we have to talk about United because, you know, sometimes luck hasn't been on their side. But they were magnificent against Brighton, also led by their young forwards in Martial and Rashford. Martial, very, very happy to sacrifice. Rashford, insanely good. But that opening goal, I'm sorry, but did you just think, how, the, how did Pereira manage that? I mean, how could anyone be so lucky to, you know, <laughs> to, to get it deflected? I mean, the pass wasn't even there. What was what do you what did you make of that victory? Yeah, it, it was United up to so far this season had um, done well against teams above them. Uh, so uh, they beat Leicester, they beat Chelsea, they drew with Liverpool. Uh, they haven't played City yet, uh, and Brighton were above them in mm. the table when they went into this game. So perhaps we shouldn't be surprised. If you look at that, the reason why they do better against other teams is that they're entirely set up for the counter attack. They've got quite a strong defence. They're not bad in defence. They've got lightning pace up front. Absolutely. They've got nobody in the midfield who can keep hold of the ball. So, of course, the only way you can do it is to uh, counter attack. And Brighton played absolutely into their hands. So let's... Uh, acknowledge that the the manner in which Brighton allowed them to counter was was uh, you know uh, Solskjaer must have been uh, rubbing his hands. It's a slightly different situation at United than at Chelsea. Um, but again, there's a degree of pragmatism involved. Solskjaer knows he's got to completely revamp his side, and he's playing on the United traditions of bringing youth through, uh, and it, and it's paying off for him at the moment. But the trouble with Going back to uh, what Matt was saying, the trouble with youth is it's terribly inconsistent. Mm. And so, you know, they'll have these games where they play really, really well and then next week they they falter or the week after they'll they'll trip up. So, you know, it's not going to do much, but it is very exhilarating when it works. And I'll tell you who, you know, uh, another example, the Reese James equivalent uh, was Brandon Williams, the uh, the left back who who looked remarkable. He's got a kind of streak of nastiness in him, which is uh, which is he always very tolerable. He was excellent at Chelsea in the Carabao. Cup yeah. as well, noticeably very good. Right, so I want to talk a little bit about the, you know, you got a, a bit of abuse, Jim, on Twitter <laughs> for coming from somebody who understands the pain I was about of that. to say, no one gets abused on Twitter, do <laughs> Where they? Where did that know? What? Um, for questioning the potential Saudi team. Yes, it's, it's an interesting subject because there was... Um, uh, rumours that uh, the Saudis, uh, Saudi government was going to uh, try and make a bid for Manchester United and... Um, uh, Sources at United are saying that there's nothing in it. But I actually think the Saudis probably are looking at, uh, at football. I think they are looking at it. They've seen how Qatar have, uh, have thrived uh, by association. They've seen Abu Dhabi at Manchester City. Um, Argentina are playing Brazil uh, in Jeddah um, in this international break. So they're obviously looking at using it as a vehicle uh, to promote themselves internationally, so I don't think it's I don't think it's ludicrous to say the Saudis are, are coming in. I just merely pointed out that it would probably be the worst thing that had ever happened to Manchester United if the Saudis <laughs> took over. Uh, and I was uh, I was put in my place by people using a hashtag that seriously I thought anybody with any moral compass would vomit before using, which is hashtag Saudis in, which is doing the rounds on social media amongst Manchester United fans. Saudis, okay, right. Well, it's actually, interestingly, the Italian Supercoppa is there as well. So, and that's it's yes, be and the, the and the World year. Heavyweight uh, Boxing Championship uh, title fight between uh, Anthony Joshua and Anthony Luis is there. So that you know they are looking at sport in the way that some of their neighbours have used sport as a vehicle to promote themselves internationally. Right. Okay. So we've covered the top four out of all of these people, and then now we're going to go into the rest of the Premier League. We think Solskjaer's probably going to keep his job. No, no fear over that. It might be Unai Emery, it might be Hasenhutl, but we're fairly confident Solskjaer's keeping his job. Yeah. Yeah? yeah. Okay. Hi, I'm Katie Morley, and I'm the Telegraph's Consumer Champion. It's a big job title, but what it really means is that I help readers who are being ripped off. I've heard from scam victims, people whose insurance won't pay up, readers who've been on horrendous holidays or been fleeced by car hire firms. You name it, I've dealt with it. And I've managed to win back over £800,000 for our readers in less than six months. It's not always easy, though. I've spent hours on the phone arguing with companies and stepped in where the police refused. And time, as we all know, means money. 
That's where our subscribers come in. If you subscribe to The Telegraph, you're helping fund public service journalism like this, as well as great podcasts like the one you're listening to. So, if you'd like to help support what we're doing and get unlimited access to the huge range of world-class journalism, head to telegraph.co.uk slash audio. You can get 30 days free access to The Telegraph online, and after that it's just £2 a week. That's telegraph.co.uk slash audio, or click on the link in the show notes to this episode. What about uh, Southampton and and Hassan Hoodsall? Is Jeremy still on the phone? Yeah, I am. I'm listening <laughs> intently. Uh, oh, Jeremy, am I allowed? I'm allowed to say that you're a big Southampton fan, aren't I? Or is that yeah, not allowed yeah, to say? Yeah, Do we have to yeah, edit yeah, this out? Say that. Yeah. yeah Jeremy's no, a massive fine. Southampton fan. He wrote, he wrote. To be fair, he wrote an excellent piece about Ralph Hampton when when Ralph first took over and, and things were going well. Well, well you're, got, you're the best person to speak to, then, Jeremy. What do you think? Do you think that you know? Do you feel that a change is required, or this is just the way that it has to be now? think I'm a bit worried in the longer term. I don't I don't necessarily think a change is I think changing the manager is probably a bit missing what the the wider problems are at the club. So perhaps I think there is a sense that as some I do get the sense that some players and some that, that Ralph's hasn't he sort sort of methods and big energy and the way he sort of came in and it was all quite a bit based around him to start with and he's been pretty he was pretty ruthless with certain players when he came in he got I mean the January transfer window quite it was pretty it sort of got a bit overlooked in some respects it was a remarkable what he did because he came in in December November December time with a club that was facing possibility of relegation and didn't actually bring players in he just got rid of a load of people who didn't like the look of um, and then and and that was enough to sort of be a bit of a catalyst to turn the season around with so he did it with players in the building but but by trimming things down which is quite an unusual method of 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 of, of a approaching it and b getting the results for it but it was very much based around his sort of personality and energy and you get a slight feeling that there was some weariness he felt quite tough with some of the players quite a little bit about him sometimes in the way he sort of took the plaudits and sort of quickly off the pitch in the result games when they didn't win and you sort of felt that maybe that might not always go down well with some of the players but I don't overall I don't think that's key that the main issue I think the main issue is um the ownership you know historically the Liebherr family put a lot of money in a lot of loans were were, were made against the club to, to and, and that sort of was behind a lot of the success and then there's some clever recruiting and really for the last the sort of since roughly when Pochettino left there they've re- trying to rebalance all of that there's not really been great investment they've kind of got by with some good 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 periods of recruitment that's not really happened the last few years the, the, they, there was a change of ownership the, the Libra family still have some some stake in the club but there's a the, the Gao family from China are now the, the principal owners, and there's been no no sort of money, extra money coming in. The, the sort of premise behind the, the, the takeover was that you know the, the usual kind of slogan of trying to take the club to the next level and all that kind of stuff. But basically, they've been even more anonymous owners than the Cronkies by, by quite they, a long um, way. They, they feel <laughs> like they remind me of um, they remind me of Villa when Villa got relegated yeah, with Randy Lerner when you had an ownership who just seemed disengaged, didn't want to put money in. Yeah, didn't want I think to that charge is, is absolutely fair against them. They, they, I mean, it's hard behind the scenes. To, they, 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 I know that there are a lot of conversations between executives there and them, but in terms of sort of being visible, being um, sort of state setting out a vision, putting any looking like they want to put any money in, looking like they really want to take the decisions. It was it was really the executive team there that that made that made that's made all the decisions on players and managers in the last few years and even since they've been there. That that you know it's it's really hard to see what what they're what 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 they're kind of offering really in terms of either decision making stroke leadership or or finance it seems that they're just happy to see the club managed as best they can there's there's something else as well i think about hassan hootel uh, which is that um 
chairmen tend to uh, go for managers on fashion. So there's a fashion for uh, types of managers. And um, I think Hassan Hoodle is at the tail end of the we'll get our own plop. Uh, fashion for managers, you know, an exciting German on the touchline. Um, uh, Daniel Farker, it's not working at uh, Norwich at the moment. He's probably taking them as far as he can. It, Huddersfield, it, you know, they tried it. They got they got literally from the same source as Klopp mm. um, at, at Dortmund. Uh, you know, it hasn't worked for them. And I wonder whether the new fashion in football for clubs like Southampton is going to be no, let's get an English guy who's brought a club up from the lower divisions. Oh, that's what happened at Bournemouth. That's what's happening at Sheffield United. To a degree, that's what they've done at Brighton. And I think that's going to be the new fashion, particularly with Wilder and Howe really looking. I think there'll be, I think there'll be promotion uh, of people up from the lower divisions. And um, I know this is going to make people smile, but I wouldn't be surprised if Carl Robinson got a call. At some point. But maybe it's just about investing a little bit more into your squad. I mean, when you looked at Huddersfield squad and of course, Norwich uh, side. Yeah, of course, all that's part of it. But I think, you know, it's chairmen go for yeah. types. Yeah, I see what Th- you mean. They're fashion, they're fashion victims. OK, we're going to let you go, Jeremy, because I know that we've held you on long <laughs> enough and I know you have the flu because I had it over the weekend. I battle it was terrible. On. You battle on, Jeremy. <laughs> you battle on. <laughs> you absolute warrior. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Thank you. Cheers. Before we move on to the Song for Europe, I just want to go through one more, uh, and that is uh, Manuel Pellegrini, because West Ham are having a really rough time of it at the moment. They started the season with so much promise. We thought that they'd be a a contender for top six. What's gone wrong? So West Ham, isn't it? Mm. It's so West Ham. It always seems to be their way that no matter how much money they spend and how optimistic they get, they, they sort of end up reverting to type. Well, they did lose Fabianski. Though, that, I mean, I was literally just about to say oh, it sorry. could be as simple <laughs> as the fact that Fabianski got injured. Um, I mean, he he's been their best player for a long time now since since he signed, um, and the replacement Roberto is you know a car crash, absolute car crash. One man se- mission to sabotage, yeah. <laughs> and it seems to have just completely affected the whole confidence and and everything within the team. Although what I would say is, uh, away from the goalkeepers, they've got a lot of players who are brilliant on their day, but a lot of players who will switch off. And if things aren't going well, aren't likely to raise themselves. There's a lot you could bracket in there in that, and I think there's too many. It's showing a, a tipping of the balance that they've got too many of a certain type almost. Um, Yarmolenko, Lanzini, Felipe Anderson, who've all gone very quiet recently, having started very well. Um, you would suspect that at some stage they will come again and that they will be okay, particularly once Fabianski's back. But they are having When's he back? Time. He's not back till the not new year, Not back till about January, yeah. So we yeah. have uh, another month and a half of this. <laughs> <laughs> it's entertaining if you're not a West Ham fan. Oh, I do feel very sorry for him. But uh, before we do move on to a song for Europe, here's women's football reporter Katie Wyatt on England's loss to Germany at the weekend. Um, I think walking down Wembley Way, even the day before when you saw, we arrived at sort of lunchtime and saw them taking the posters down for Warhorse at Wembley Arena and putting the banners up of all the England players. And there was a feeling that it was a little bit different to any of the other England games that you have at, at stadiums like Swindon Town State Ground, for instance, or um, MK Duns or Notts County's Ground. It just felt, and it sounds like a very obvious point to make, but that was the sort of moment when you were like, okay, this one's a little bit different. On the actual day of the game itself to walk down Wembley Park tube station and see the people selling half and half scarves and to see just Wembley Way being a whole sea of people. I mean, I've been there for playoff finals and I've been there for cup finals and things, but it just had a very different feel about it and a real diverse group of people from all backgrounds and all ages that have come to watch women's football and felt like a real moment for the game to have so many people coming to this event. Um, and obviously it was the biggest crowd for an England game, not a women's football game um, in this country. Um, there were loads of empty seats still, which was the disappointing thing, I think, from the FA's perspective. They'd um, marketed it as they'd shifted 86,000, but you wonder, looking back, if they're going to review now their policy on free tickets or tickets that they give away to sponsors, because um, when a significant fraction of those don't turn up, um, it kind of raises questions on what's the best strategy is to get people into a women's football game because the tickets were £15 so they have that value attached to them when you're paying a price like that you're very unlikely to flake out because the weather's poor or something like that but if you're a school that's getting free tickets or a sponsor that's getting free tickets that you're distributing to people that already have them or people that are not interested it's obviously going to affect your attendance so I think that's something that the FA will probably look at and the FA have probably learned um, 
in addition to the lessons that they've taken from the Manchester derby and the London derbies that we've seen this year and the different ticketing strategies that clubs have gone for there. Um, in terms of the actual game itself, it was a bit of a mixed bag from England's perspective. I don't think it was the worst they've played under Phil Neville, but I don't think it was the performance that they needed in front of that crowd. And I don't think it was the performance that they've needed given their run um, since the World Cup and one defeat in seven. Um, I think there were moments, I think it was very similar to the USA game in the first half an hour. They just couldn't get near Germany and Germany was so obvious that they were a class above and seven or eight steps ahead of England. Um, but then you started to see a little bit of um, movement and cohesion from England, but probably not enough um, compared to the, what they showed in the World Cup. And there were, everything always felt a little bit off kilter and a little bit off key that passes were going awry and crosses dropping short. And it just didn't feel as cohesive as England have felt when they've played their best football under Phil Neville um, which I think was disappointing and as well that you were seeing with Neville's been quite open after the World Cup that they are in a little bit of a rut and they are struggling they have struggled mentally when they got back and he's been very vocal about the lessons that he's learned in terms of how to manage their post-World Cup fatigue and you're seeing players like Steph Orton for example who's always been so reliable for England was I don't want to use the word at fault um, because it's that classic cliche of um, you've got to get through a whole team before you get to your back line but hasn't probably been um, as strong for England in terms of, of when it's come to defending the sort of key goals that have really made the difference and cost them so you're sort of seeing a lot of players that are just falling short of the standards that they've set for themselves and that Neville's set for them um, but I think it's very difficult to pinpoint what's gone wrong. I think I wouldn't say that the FA regret appointing Neville and I certainly don't think that his job's at risk given that he's going to be the Team GB manager, that the amount of backing that they've given him. I think that we're sort of forgetting that this is one of the drawbacks of this being Phil Neville's first managerial role because I don't think for a second that the FA regret appointing him. Appointing him. I think that's a really strong word and I think that given the backing that he's got from them and that he's going to lead the Team GB squad, I don't think that there is any question of his job being safe. I think he's not at risk in that sense. But I think what we are seeing is a manager who is still learning and he's admitted that after they came back from the World Cup, it was a little bit of a shock for him or something that he had to get used to was the amount of time that they needed to get over the mental and physical fatigue of, of that tournament and the way that they exited it. Um, and I think that that's probably the, the issue for him is that he's very much learning the ropes and not just in terms of man management, but in terms of what it means to be a manager and the different kind of peaks and troughs that your team go through and the nuances of managing those. So as much as you can be a professional footballer at the top level for your whole career and learn everything there is to learn about tactics, about um, systems, about kind of dressing room politics, I think being the guy that has to lead a team out of a rut or out of a bad run and the challenges and the things that that calls on for you specifically is a very different set of questions to just being um, that you would just learn as a player so I think that there's a lot there that he's probably not used to and he's probably experiencing for the first time so I think it's a difficult tightrope to walk but I think we are starting to see a little bit now some of the issues that come with appointing a guy who was in his first managerial role of there will be things that he is learning and he's an experienced at that really as a manager of an England national team you're, you're probably not going to have the time to work out necessarily as you would at club level. And now we're listening to the fine tunes of some Spanish ukulele, which I'm sure that tower producer Joel has found. And it's time for a song for Europe. Did you guys watch the Die Classica? No, but I know all about Ronaldo being subbed off. Does that count for Song for Europe? Oh, that does. <laughs> the Classica was, of course, uh, Bayern Munich versus Borussia Dortmund, and uh, that was such an interesting game to watch because, obviously, there's been a lot of talk about Lucien Favre being uh, sacked, and we know that Niko Kovac did indeed get sacked, and they're under the hands of Hansi Flick, who reintroduced Thomas Müller to the lineup, and he was fantastic, to say the least. And you know what it is? You know, sometimes when you just bring in a coach who just does the basic fundamentals a little bit like Solskjaer did when he arrived at Manchester United and that's what it is you know tighten up your passing defend a little bit deeper because you're hideous at defending you know and let's see what we can do and what they did was get 4-0 victory and so everyone's wondering whether Flick you know what's going to happen there and obviously what's going to happen with Wenger because Wenger said that he's in Qatar until Sunday and so let's see where negotiations are 
will take them there. I did I just I did look at the Bundesliga table this morning and I was very surprised to see Borussia Mönchengladbach back on the top of it. Yeah, I don't want to talk about it because apparently they're the greatest things in Europe. But Marco anyway. Rose, the guy who was at Salzburg. He was, and he did a very fine job over there. Yeah, he's very highly rated, isn't he? And he's he's done a very good job so far in the Bundesliga, but for me it's it's a lack of competition and that's why I think they're finding themselves there because obviously, you know, because of the fact that Dortmund's going through this terrible season mm. and they just look like sometimes they're void of any grit and that solidity that you need in a team and the others you know Bayern under Kovac have not been where they need to be I Um, assumed Leipzig would be top I thought that's why I looked at the table I was checking whether Leipzig were top and they're not which surprised me uh, if Bayern uh, if Bayern are in trouble where does that leave Spurs Matt and I were both at that (laughs) 7-2 game well, this was a performance that many said was much better than even the 7-2. Oh. I think that says a, that victory said more about Spurs than it did about Bayern. I think it did. Yeah. <laughs> Moving on, obviously, it was uh, same old, same old in, in in Spain in the sense that well, perhaps that's not true to say because finally Barcelona won after having some terrible moments against Levante, obviously losing and then not managing anything in the Champions League against Slavia Prague. There's been a lot of pressure on Valverde, who I just want to mention again, is on 23 million, by the way. What? Yes, 23 million. Per per year? Per yes, week? absolutely. I mean, we talk about Zidane, but the guy's on 12, yeah? I mean, this is man's on oh, 20. How does he survive on 12 million? I know, it's so little. <laughs> can we have a, can we just shake, shake a <laughs> jar outside? But 23 million, but either way, obviously Messi and a hat-trick. Meanwhile, Real Madrid did get uh, four against Eibar, and I don't know if you watched them in the Champions League, but little Rodrigo is certainly the man that his, everyone keeps talking about. So it's all happy business right now in La Liga, and maybe some one actually does want to win it this year round but Italy is going to take centre stage because uh, I know you're a huge fan of Antonio Conte did you see his massive rant after Dortmund Yes, I did. I loved it. I loved it. It was so Conte. And it, it, <laughs> it was. It was so Conte. It was scripted. It was scripted. It was really prime, from absolute prime Conte. Conte playbook. It? Yeah, absolute but prime it, Conte. It has caused like never-ending headlines in Italy. We're, we're used to him going a little but bit crazy. Whatever you think about Conte, and I know you're not a fan, mm. he makes Serie A 100% more interesting than it was. Yeah, but that's like a little bit like saying, you know, someone was saying, oh, La Liga really misses Mourinho. And I said, why? And I said, they said, because there's no drama or scandal. Yeah, but he's he does bring, I mean, he's brought a title race. Absolutely. And he's brought drama and scandal. And for me, who's not that interested in Serie A generally, mm. I'm now engaged. So oh, I think well I think it's great for the league. I think it's fantastic for the league. I do think he's great. And he has really, truly been fantastic for Inter in the sense that they have a solid identity. They're so interested um, and determined and motivated. They already look like they are a team that is just impossible to defeat unless you are a side like Barcelona and Dortmund and have a, a lot of players with good feet. But I think that what it is is that he's just... He says things that sometimes just seems a little bit like he's like, well, we're playing every three days and we're exhausted. Well, what did you think was going to happen? You took on a side that, you know, plays in the Champions League and obviously in Serie A. And you have Antonio Pintas, the man who was the fitness coach under Zinedine Zidane when they won the double. And he is one of the most extraordinary fitness coaches uh, and very much the man who used to make people throw up at Juventus, which is how Zinedine Zidane and Conte know him. So your team... You know, it, it's good enough. It's doing very well. Sometimes you're going to lose and you can't have Lionel Messi on the bench. And so he's very upset that he doesn't have this spectacular bench. And he said, you know, what do you want me to do? I can't win these games because, you know, who am I going to call on? Nic- Nicolo Barella from Cagliari and Sensi from Sassuolo. It's a little bit like if Klopp turned around and said, you know, what do you want me to do? I can't win against City. I've got Van Dijk. He came from Southampton. He did the same <laughs> at Chelsea. He said, I remember him saying, oh, what do you want me to do? We've got Giroud of Arsenal's substitutes bench and we've got an injured left back who was Palmieri at the time when he was talking about their January signing I mean it's classic Conte it's brilliant but despite that they'd won over Verona and it was in fact Barella who uh, who got like a stunning goal so he's clearly not upset by this and they all celebrated together in a very happy manner it looks like Sadi is not really interested in actually training Juventus uh, they're winning just uh, they won against Milan just by basically imposing uh, their quality when they can, just, you know, individual quality when it matters. But the other big story is obviously Carlo Ancelotti at Napoli because there just seems to, it's just a royal mess over there. Um, they're not scoring goals. So the president ordered them into Retiro, which is a training camp where they all have to sleep in the same place, wake up in the same place, eat the same, you know, it's like a punitive thing which the president insists wasn't done in any way to punish his team. But uh, 
after Salzburg. They refused to go back to the hotel. They all went back to their families, and now it's created even more chaos. So one thinks that that uh, marriage is going to end soon. Well, you can thank that chaos for me being here today because I was meant to interview Carlo Ancelotti, and I wasn't going to be here. And because of that mess, the interview, funnily enough, got cancelled. So <laughs> I am they said? to be here. They said, sorry, Matt, we're in a total chaos here. No, right? that's never quite the reason they give, is it? <laughs> no, but, um, but they're not allowed to speak to the media at the moment. It, uh, it got cancelled for other reasons, but I suspect the chaos is the real reason. <laughs> yeah. And therefore I'm here. So thanks for Napoli. Well, oh, thanks to Napoli. Thanks, <laughs> so it's been exciting because we have so many exciting coaches. Conte may have grown back his hair, but some of us are losing just watching Are you it. not going to mention Ronaldo? Because it was What's going on? It's not true. What is being said is just Well, he got people. substituted. So he did get substituted and he After got substituted 55 minutes, in, like against Lokomotiv Moscow to begin yeah. with. And that was because Sarri came out and said, I didn't like the way he was running because obviously he's got a bit of an, uh, an injury. He's got, you know, fatigue with his adductors. And so I didn't like the way he was running. So I took him off and, you know, fine. And, you know, he always reacts like that when he sort of walks off the because he's more annoyed that he didn't perform the way that he wanted to. And in this match against Milan, he actually called out to the bench. And there's video footage of it now of him sort of, you know, it's been circled around social media where you can see he's like really struggling. And that's why he was taken off. He has been performing a little bit below par. I was going to say, what does he do now next game? Because Dybala comes on scores. Mm. They win without him. Dybala has been fantastic, has been, uh, as has Iguain. But I think that it's good that international pyramid, he just needs a little bit of a rest. Um, he hasn't really kicked on this season. And you just imagine that Juventus would just reach another gear with him. Mm. But um, I, do, I do feel a little bit sorry for him. I'm not entirely sure. Ronaldo? Mm. No. But then I always feel sorry for I've got him. nothing against Ronaldo. But I don't feel sorry for him. No. I'm, I'm more interested in the sorry aspect of whether he's going to um, end up in a sort of you know, conflict with him or not, or not even a real conflict, but a fake conflict, but because it's Sari and the way he is. Maybe, yeah. He doesn't really care, Sari, does he? He doesn't care how things are portrayed, so he won't care that people are saying, oh, there could be problems yeah, between these two guys. Yeah, but he very differently because the first thing that Juventus did when they showed up is like, listen, firstly, you need to rotate. We're not going to accept what you did with Napoli. Um, secondly, you need to uh, make sure that Ronaldo gets everything he wants. And that was very much expressed to him. And that's why he's come out in every press conference being like, my team st- stick to, you know, a tactical regimen. But good old Ronaldo is allowed to do whatever he wants. <laughs> and he's really treated him with this, like, lots of love and affection. And and I don't know, they all they all seem to be... It's the one dressing room where they're happy that one of them is on 30 million mm. um, because it is Ronaldo. But what can I tell you about that? But thank you so much for your company. Thank you. Thank you very much. And uh, we'll be back next week. That's all for today. Contact the podcast, AFC Podcast at telegraph.co.uk. We'll read out the best of what you send us. And also you can subscribe to the podcast. Search for the Telegraph Audio Football Club. Thanks to Joel Grove on the buttons and thanks to you for your company. I'll talk to you again soon.